do keep your Bibles open, please. We're 1003, if you have one of these um, church Bibles, do we call them? I don't know. I think you said they were on the pew a moment ago, which I'm not sure I see many pews. Um, I have to say, it's an absolute joy to be here. Um, a number of us have been praying and thinking and plotting for years, and so to come and actually see Town Church Bicester um, in the early weeks is a real privilege, so keep going, guys, it's, it's great. Um, and I bring warm greetings from Magdalen Road as well. For those of you who were there, we miss you. Um, we've certainly not filled the gaps, um, but it's a real privilege and joy to hear and to see how things are going. Um, do keep Mark 2 open in front of you. Um, I don't know what you make of Jesus. It's quite a key question, isn't it? I think it would be fair to say that Jesus has always been a controversial figure. But maybe we shouldn't be surprised by that, because often if you look down at history, um, the most controversial people um, have always or often been the most influential. But generally, it's the ideas of the person which kind of brings the controversy. So do you remember at school, a guy called Karl Marx? Um, it was his sort of political and economic theories that were controversial. Or think um, Sigmund Freud, unconventional ideas regarding mental illness and um, theories to do with that. Or even more recently, did you see the Jordan Peterson, the psychologist philosopher guy who was on Channel 4 a little while ago, that interview with Kathy Newman, if you've not seen that, um, have a look on Google, six million hits, I think. Um, speaking out against all kinds of things in our society at the moment. Um, but with these controversial people, though, it's usually their ideas that are controversial. They are what cause the problems. They are what make them divisive. The issue with Jesus is not so much his ideas, but rather who he claimed to be. The vast majority of people will agree with Jesus and his teaching. Think, turn the other cheek. Very honourable notion. Tick box. We like that. Treat your neighbour as yourself. Hard, but we love the idea. Tick. Who could complain about those things? That The moral values of Jesus have hardly, if ever, been contradicted. But unlike Freud or Marx or Peterson or others... The problem with Jesus is not the ideas that he had, his teaching, but actually his identity. And if Christians had been prepared to just call him a teacher or a philosopher or a genius or a, a guru or something like that, then he would have simply been revered in history as a saint and everybody would have loved him. Problem is, Christians have always insisted Jesus cannot be simply pigeonholed as a teacher or a genius or a guru or whatever. The only word that can hold him is that of God. The only category is that of divine. Did you see the distinction? And what we get in these 12 verses for this afternoon, start of Mark chapter 2, at first it just seems like a nice little story. But you begin to reflect on it and you see it's actually much more than that. Actually, it is the reason that the opposition against Jesus begins, even in chapter 2. We've got another 14 chapters to go in Mark's Gospel. But here in chapter 2, there begins to be a bit of friction with the religious leaders. So far in Mark, it's been pretty plain sailing. Have a kind of glance back to the last couple of pages. You see things are going all right. Um, there's been a, a leper, there have been various people. 
but actually in terms of how other folk perceive him or relate to him, it's been pretty good. I'm going to split the passage um, 2 verse 1 to 12 into two, if that helps you, if you will, the note-taking type. Um, the first thing I want to say is that, and this is controversial, our greatest need is forgiveness of sins. Okay, I'll say that again. Our greatest need is forgiveness of sins. And I recognise that will sound controversial to some of you. It's pretty clear that this guy in the story has got a big problem, yeah? Doesn't take a genius. See, he, he is paralysed. He cannot walk. And that has been so hard. Just try and get inside his head, seeing all your friends around you as you grow up. See the dancing, walking on the beach, playing football, able to get around without the help of anybody else. If this guy wanted to get anywhere, he would have to rely on other people entirely. Imagine that, wherever you wanted to go, needing your friends to help you. This guy, guy clearly had a big problem. And it would have been obvious, wouldn't it? what he needed most in all the world. As you say, Jesus had already met various people. He had met a leper who had come to him at the end of the last chapter. But this guy is different because he can't get there by himself. But he had some mates, so it all seems all right. He's got some good mates and they come and help him. Maybe Jesus is the guy that he needs. And the first part of the plan picture it goes pretty well they they carry their mate to the house where Jesus is on some kind of makeshift stretcher probably that's where he spends most of his time but then there's a problem because the popularity of Jesus means they can't get close he's the talk of the town everyone is there look verse one and two they they gather in such large num large numbers wherever Jesus goes you can't get a word there are too many people and so even you'll find him in sort of more countryside, rural areas where there are fewer people, smaller crowds, a bit more peace and quiet. Anyway, the crowd gathering around Jesus at this house means that the friends need to adapt their plan. They can't get close enough, but their friends are ingenious. See, they have faith, verse 5, and so they persevere. It's like that kid's book, do you remember? Um, maybe some of you read it ad infinitum, as we used to. We're going on a bear hunt. Except it's not a bear, it is Jesus they are hunting. Uh-oh, crowds. We can't get round them. We can't get through them. We can't get under them. We'll have to go over them. And onto the roof they climb. I wonder who it was that felt the plaster fall from the ceiling first can imagine cries of disbelief in the room itself. A small hole above becomes slightly bigger and slightly bigger, and then some faces peep in over the edge. And then on, on a bed, this, this man is lowered down in their midst. You can imagine the cries of anger from the people trying to get to the front of the queue around Jesus. You can imagine the cries of anger from the guy who owned the home, whoever that was. You can imagine the high fives from the friends up top saying, we did it, we got to the front. Go for it. And there they are, roof partially destroyed, mission accomplished, one miracle short of a five-a-side team. Now all they need is Jesus to do his thing. And verse 5, when Jesus, you see it, look down, 
when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, son, get up and walk. But he doesn't say that, does he? That's not how it goes. Jesus, you've got the story wrong. He says, son, your sins are forgiven, verse 5. That's awkward, isn't it? It's astonishing, offensive. Does Jesus care nothing for this man? Can't he see the man's problem? Again, imagine the friends looking down at each other, shouting, what did he say? Sins? Jesus, no, it's not his sins, it's his legs. You've got it wrong, Jesus. What are you doing? He can't walk. Heal his legs, Jesus. But you see, he's not got it wrong at all. And Jesus cares more deeply for this man than anyone standing in the room or any friend on the roof above as he lowers him down. His friends think his greatest need is healing. But Jesus, like an expert doctor, knows or sees an even greater need, a more urgent problem for this guy. More urgent even than not being able to walk. He has the need for sins to be forgiven. Now, of course, not being able to walk is clearly a serious problem. But the implication from this story is that sin is more threatening than sickness. Do you see that? And what is sin, we say? It's one of those words we use at church sometimes. It's kind of language that we can use and not quite sure what it really means. Sin is what separates us from God. It is the, the brokenness and fallenness of the world that comes from a people God has made not living with him in charge. People have walked out on God and said they want to do it alone, they want to be in charge, they don't want him. And if God is there, then he's some kind of footnote that we'll turn to when things go hard, when it's tricky, when life is difficult. Sin is us turning away from God. Sin is us not being friends with God. And so far in Mark, he has shown us that Jesus has this amazing power this amazing power to heal lepers, lepers, (laughs) to heal um, Simon's mother-in-law. He has powers over sickness, he has powers over uncleanness. But here we see something even more amazing in chapter 2. He's not just got the power to deal with sickness and uncleanness, he's got the power to deal with sin itself, the root cause of suffering in the world the separation we have from God. And Jesus is presented with this paralysed man who is very obviously needy and yet he sees with absolute clarity the most important thing that he needs. Stick yourself in the room as he's lowered down. What would your knee-jerk reaction be for what this guy needs most? I think I know what mine would be. I would be with his friends. I, I would think he needs healing. But Jesus knew better. By forgiving his sins, Jesus saved his life. 
you're here and you would call yourself a Christian or a believer, this means something quite important for us because it means Jesus is contradicting, contradicting us when we live in a way that says people or things or feelings are our greatest needs in this life. We think if we are to enjoy life, we need wealth, health, family, grades, spouse, money, job, those kinds of things, things of this, of this life. And yet suddenly we read Mark chapter 2 and everything is relativised. It's very challenging. If I was to ask you what your greatest need in life is, what would you say? And I know if you're a Christian here, you know what you're meant to say, yeah? We know the answer. We know what we're meant to say. We're meant to say forgiveness. We're meant to say sins forgiven. We're meant to say a right relationship with God again. But here's the thing. We're meant to say that. But what do we actually crave and long for in life? What do we think we need? It's striking, isn't it? I wonder whether there's something in this passage that just puts its finger on the problem of contentment that we have as Western Christians. It kind of focuses in on it. Because we can tick the box and we say, well, I know what the most important things in life are, but actually, how do we live? What do we long for? What is it? Pay rise. That'd be good, wouldn't it? Holiday? If I just had that new job, then I would be content. If I had a spouse, then I would be content. If I had another spouse, then I would be content. If I had children, then I would be content. Or a healed relationship, or a bit more money, or whatever it might be. And those things aren't bad things. But when those things become our perspective, when they become our ultimate focus, so we're never content because we've lost sight of what we do have. And we have forgiveness of sins. So first point, our greatest need is forgiveness of sins. Second point, only Jesus can forgive our sins. Have a look at verse 6. Let me read that bit again for us. Now, some teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, what does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins? but God alone. So we're in the room, temperature drops, there's a gasp. You can see what they're thinking. Who on earth do you think you are forgiving sins? Only God can forgive sins, they say. That is his territory. Jesus, you speak like this, that is blasphemous. And you see, recognising the world's big problem is one thing, I guess any religious person or a guru could do that. But to actually claim to be able to forgive? Jesus, you've, you've gone too far. Jesus, you've stepped into God's domain there. And do you know what? These teachers of the law, they are absolutely right. They are spot on. They are bang on the money. Forgiving sin is God's right. This is really important. If, if 
you're here this afternoon and you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, this is something to kind of wrestle with. The, the teachers of the law were right. Picture this. If I were to hit Lanks in the face, it's tempting, isn't it? No. If I were to hit Lanks in the face, I would have wronged him. Our relationship would have broken to some level. And then if Johnny were to stand up and say, Dan, it's all right, I forgive you for hitting Lanks in the face, that would be ridiculous, wouldn't it? That would be ineffective and stupid because he doesn't have the right to forgive me for punching Lanks. I need to be forgiven by Lanks because he is the one that I have wronged. You see, if my relationship with Lanks is to be restored, he needs to forgive me, not Johnny. And as we said earlier, sin is all about God and us. It's about our bad attitude towards God. It's about saying, no, thank you, God, we don't want you. It's as if we're punching him in the face. Which means who has the right to forgive sins? Only God has the right to forgive sins. All sin, even sin against others, is primarily an offence against God. Let me give you um, an example of this. If you want to look it up later, please do. There's a very famous psalm in the Bible, Psalm 51. Um, And there was a, a king, kind of we think a bit of a superhero king, just before this, um, called King David. And he writes this psalm just after he has committed adultery with a lady that he fancied called Bathsheba. And obviously David had wronged Bathsheba. And then obviously actually David wrongs her husband because he deliberately makes sure he is removed from the equation by putting him onto the front line of a war. Um, And so King David has sinned against Bathsheba and her husband Uriah. But listen to what David writes. He pours out his heart to God. He's looking back at his sin against them and he says this. He says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion. Blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. And then he says this. He says, Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Do you see, of course, in one sense, his sin was on the horizontal. David had sinned against Bathsheba and against her husband. He had treated them badly. But in reality, because we live in a moral world, the vertical dimension was crucial. He had sinned primarily against God. And therefore, it's only God who can truly forgive him. King David knows that. Which means we look at Mark chapter 2 and only God on earth could forgive people their sins. And when Jesus says, your sins are forgiven, he is making a huge claim, an almighty claim, because he is claiming to be God. He is the one who can deal with sin. That's massive. That's massive in all kinds of ways, but particularly notice this because... Because sometimes people say, well, Jesus never actually claimed to be God, did he? Maybe you've got friends who would say that. And Jesus might well have not walked around shouting to everybody, wearing a big badge, saying, I am God. 
but he did walk around deliberately doing the kind of stuff that God did. He did walk around speaking the kind of stuff that God says. And he did go around forgiving people their sins, as God did. And the teachers of the law see it. As an aside, Jesus doesn't deliberately wear the big badge and have the neon lights, because at this point, at least, he is really keeping his identity on the down low. He, he needs to get to the cross. That is where he has to go. And so he shuts up demons, you'll see, and he tells them to be quiet. He leaves when the crowds get too big. He's not going to grab a megaphone and explicitly announce he is God's son. But he wants us to join the dots. And the volume does get louder on his identity as you go through the gospel. And the teachers of the law get it. Verse 6. And they are angry. Can he prove it though? Can Jesus prove that he can forgive sins? Anyone can claim stuff, yeah? But, but was Jesus legit? How do we know? Well, he knows exactly what's going on in their minds. And so he asked the people a question, verse 9. Um, which is easier to say to this paralysed man, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take your mat and walk? Which is easier, Jesus? Well, it's easier to say it, isn't it? Because anyone can say it, you don't know if it's true or not. How can Jesus prove that he has the authority to forgive sins? How can he prove he is the real deal? How can he prove he is God? Well, in order to prove he can do this unseen action of forgiveness, he does a seen action of healing. Do you see that? In order to prove he forgives sins, so he heals. The healing is the evidence for his identity. And so he says, do you see it? Verse 11, get up, take your mat and go home. And verse 12, he got up, took his mat and walked out. And so when he says to the guy, your sins are forgiven, verse 5, we know that his sins are forgiven because of the action of the healing. So we're in the crowd in the room and we've come expecting to see a healer. And there's plenty of healing being done. But actually, at this point, something different happens. Suddenly, we see God on earth forgiving sins, and the healing is your proof of your identity that you can do that. And I take it this would be surprising. God's king, he's not just come to deal with the consequences of sin, he's come to deal with sin itself. He's come to deal with what makes the world broken. He's come to deal with our relationship with God. It's not just the symptoms of the disease he's dealing with, it's the cause of the disease. And as Mark unfolds, you'll see over the next few weeks how it is that he can forgive, how it is that 
our offence against God can be dealt with? The answer is the cross. I'll give it away. But stay around as you see why that works. And no wonder the story finishes as it does. End of verse 12. They praise God saying, we have never seen anything like this. So I don't know what you think of Jesus. This little account is interesting, isn't it? It it means we can't just consider him to be a good teacher or a healer or even a miracle worker or some kind of religious guru. This story knocks that idea on the head. The crowds had never seen anything like him. There never has been anything like him since. No one has dared to claim to be God and then lived a life that backed up that claim. And so it might be that you're here, you wouldn't call yourself a believer. Can I encourage you to begin to or continue to grapple with some of these ideas? You can maybe see something of why these teachers of the law thought what Jesus was saying was blasphemous. You see, they got the consequences, the outworking of his, his comments to this guy. They understood that saying your sins are forgiven is a crazy thing if you are, in fact, not God. Keep coming. If that's you, keep coming. Keep asking your friends, what, why are you here? Are, are you a Christian? Why are you a Christian? Who is this Jesus guy? Um, let me a- answer your, your questions or seek to give them your questions so they can answer them. I think it's too hard just to shrug your shoulders and say, well, whatever. This man is the most important person to ever walk on the face of the earth and we need to get to grips with who he is. But let me say, if you're here and you are a believer, friends, know that you and I, in this story, we are the paralytic. We are the one whom Jesus says to us, your sins are forgiven. The greatest problem that you have in this world has been dealt with by me, says Jesus to us. And so let me encourage you as I encourage myself to be a bit more content with life. Because so easily we think it's the kind of physical stuff that's going to make us happy. But actually stories like this relativise things. And we see that we have the most important stuff dealt with because of who Jesus is. Let me lead us in prayer. I'll hand back to Johnny. Lord Jesus, we confess to you that stories like this unsettle us because too easily we think what this guy's greatest need was. We thank you for what this reveals to us of who Jesus is. Thank you that he had the authority to forgive sins and he proved that as he raised this guy off the mat. Lord, if we're here and we, we wouldn't call ourselves Christians, please help us as we explore these things. Lord, if we're here and we would call ourselves Christians, 
Help us please to, to know a contentment because we have Christ and he is enough and because our sins are forgiven. Amen.